0: I will have scripture and prayer as soon as I know what it is. Is that you laughing over there, Melissa? She looks different today. Looks different. Isaiah sixty-four verse four. Sixty-four four. Okay. Isaiah 64, 4, Revised Standard Version. From of old no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides thee who works for those who wait for him. And we all know who Dr. Trot is, right? Daniel, do you know who Dr. Trot is? No, um, Dr. Trot is a member of our church. He works in the School of Dentistry down at Loma Linda University, and he will bring to us our message today. Okay. Is there anything else I can add to that, Dr. Trot? Uh, he's, he's he's married to a wife that just doesn't come very often, and she cooks oh, <laughs> Mala is, is an excellent cook. Welcome, Dr. Trott. Come on, come on.
1: Well, I'm delighted to see you all today, and it's an honor for me to be here. Thank you very much for coming. And I have a very ambitious title today. Uh, I'm confident I won't be able to reach this objective, but I wanted, I entitled this sermon, The Incredible... And advantages of being a Christian. And I am especially grateful to be a Christian because I feel like I was a brand plucked out of the fire. Um, my friends in high school did not do very well. Some of them, a number of them, ended up in jail. And I was able to somehow escape that. And I think it was entirely by God's grace. But I think that we need to concentrate on how God has guided and led each one of us individually and the blessings that we have received. Um, I was reading the Bible uh, last night, and I was reading about how the people of Israel allowed themselves to be influenced by the people of the East. They were taking in foreign religions, foreign ideas, and they became very corrupt. And I think that we have to realize that we live in a society where there is a lot of distractions and corruptions. And I'm gonna be telling a story today out of a book by Ruth Wheeler, it's called His Messenger, and it's stories about Ellen White. And I enjoy these stories because they help remind me how God has led our church in the past. And have any of you read this or parts of it? No? Okay. Well, I go to used bookstores, and whenever <laughs> I find a book by Ellen White, or if I see one on um, a Libra, which is a website that sells used books, or Amazon used book, I try to get biogra- Adventist biographies. And I have a, about two bookshelves, are about so wide, filled with biographies about some day Adventists. And they're very interesting reading. does it have audio? Some of the books are online audio. audio on the internet? I seriously doubt it because it's copyrighted 1939. <laughs> <So> <laughs> But um, so a lot of these, these books are older and hard to come by. they're very very hard to come by and I think some of them are disappearing. But some of these biographies are just, when I read them I am just astonished. One of my favorites is China Doctor and it's a story of Harry Miller and he became a missionary to China about 1920 and he started. He and his wife, and the conference started nine hospitals in China. That's Adventist. I'm sorry. Seventh day Adventist. Seventh-day Adventist. And he was the doctor for the emperor of Mongolia, and he he was very well known in China. He developed new surgical techniques for removing cancerous thyroid glands, and the medical students, um, physicians here can probably explain this better than I, but a 100 years ago, if you had your thyroid gland removed, your body temperature would drop uh, maybe five degrees or more when the thyroid gland came out, and they went into thermal shock, and the temperature kept dropping and dropping, and typically within two days of the surgery you would die just from hypothermia. Now some of these people would recover, I mean not everybody died, but I think the death rate was like 20% from hypothermia after the surgery. So it was a death, It was for some people it was considered almost a death sentence to get your thyroid removed. And um, in fact there's a story in the book about A man came in, he had thyroid cancer, and Dr. Miller said, well, we need to remove your thyroid gland. And the man said, go ahead. He just didn't worry about it at all. And Dr. Miller was shocked, because usually people go into shock when they have to have their thyroid removed, because they know what it means. But he found out this, this man wanted to commit suicide. I mean, he wanted to die, so that's why he wanted to go ahead with the surgery. But Dr. Miller developed this technique where he would keep the patients in a hot water bath for about 48 hours afterwards and keep their body temperature up, and then they would kind of recover, and, and a lot of them would survive. So he lowered the death rate from about 20% down to 2%, which was quite a, a big change. And he was, there was an article written about him in Newsweek magazine in the 1930s, and he was listed as the physician of the century. So 7 day Adventist was, was picked out by Newsweek magazine as the best physician of the 19th century, which is really remarkable. And there's lots of other amazing stories in the book. I mean, I just read this, and I like to give this book to young people. And I say, this is not a book about Harry Miller. This is a book about you what you can do if, God, if you allow God to work through you. Because he worked many, many other miracles. Um, one of my other favorites is Yankee on the Yangtze. Have, has anybody read that one? What is it? Yankee. Y-A-N-K-E-E. Like the New York Yankees. That's what I thought you said. That's a sign for an American, Yankee. On the Yangtze, which is a river in China. Oh. And it's a story about... Um, one of our elders who was sent to, his name will come to me in a minute, uh, sent to China as a missionary, and he was a professor. We had a college in China, an Adventist college. It was called the China Training Institute. It wasn't called a university or a college because in China in the 1920s, you had to, in, in every school, the Department of Education required you to kneel down and like bow down before the picture of the President of China. So you actually had to bow down, and I mean the students had to get on their knees and bow before the the President of China. And the Adventists refused to do this. So the uh, Minister of Education came to the school because he knew that they weren't bowing down. And he said, you have two weeks to comply or we're gonna close the school. So of course they didn't comply. And the minister of education came back two weeks later and school was going on. And so he went to Elder Reebok, who was the president of the college and said, I ordered you to close this school. So why are the students still here? And he said, the school is closed. And the minister goes, but, but the students are still here. And then Reebok pulled out this long document with all sorts of um, stamps on it and ribbons and things from the minister of labor who had authorized the school to become a training institute instead of a college. He said, we are now operating under the protection of the minister of labor. This is no longer a college, it's a training institute uh, to teach skills for people, and they were teaching skills. They taught them how to milk cows, how to grow strawberries. How to they built a? They built hospital furniture. It was the only place in China where they were building hospital furniture. So they had a lot of customers, um, hospital beds and other other wooden furniture for the hospitals. And they made so much money that. Guess how much the tuition was for the students per year? Probably for Well, it was very close to it. It was like $10 a year for tuition. That included room, board, everything. It was $10 a year. A year. A year. And so, of course, now that would be about 100 times more than that. So that would be probably like 1000 a year today. But what does it cost to go to an Adventist school today? It's what, about 35,000 a year or more? More, yeah. Okay, so they, they were very careful to follow the instructions of Ellen White in how they ran the school. Um, one of the things that they did in their dairy is, now when, when they started the dairy, the cows that they had were all infected with lice and ticks and there, there were so many ticks on these things that they weren't getting any milk out of them because the ticks were sucking all the blood out and the cows were not producing milk. And um, so one of the professors there had been grow up on his or his wife grew up on a farm and he said, well, how do we get rid of these? And she says, you take creosote, which is a pretty strong chemical. I guess they preserve wood with it too, like they... Telephone poles and things, but anyway. So they took it a creosol in a bucket and they, they washed these cows down, got rid of all the ticks. The, tick, the cows got healthy. And then they would bathe the cows before they milked them. Before they milked the cows, they would wash them down with soap and water and brushes, and then they milked the cows. So these cows were very clean. And the Department of Health tested the milk in China and found that their milk... Was had a lower bacterial count before it was pasteurized than the other dairies did after the milk was pasteurized. So they, they had this reputation for having incredible dairy products. And it got to be, in fact, there were riots that started when they, would, they had a truck and they would take their produce and their milk to the market. And when the people saw the Adventist, the Chinese people saw the Adventist truck coming up, it would start a riot and people were climbing all over each other to get this excellent milk and the produce that they produced. So there's some really fascinating biographies um, that, that I think all young people need to read because if you read and understand them, they'll change your life. Now I want to launch into the story here about Ellen White. and. Ellen White received a vision from an angel, she said, that she was supposed to write or or carry this message to all the people who in in the growing, the budding, very small Adventist church. So they started traveling, her husband and her, started traveling around James White, New England, and they didn't have a lot of money and the church was very poor. And so James White, to try to make money, he purchased, a, I'm, I don't know if I'm gonna pronounce this right, a scythe? Is that for, how do you pronounce it? Scythe. Scythe, for cutting down wheat and, and barley and other grains. And so he got a job cutting down grain to make enough money so they could travel around to all these churches. And they were speaking and traveling and, and They were very poor and they were really struggling. Now, as I tell you the story, you might ask yourself, how can this be an incredible blessing to be a Christian if you're so poor you have to get a job as a day laborer to make enough money to travel around to do the Lord's work? What kind of a blessing is this? Well, I'll try to answer that later, but it was very difficult for them. Now, later, after they had been traveling around for a good long while, Mrs. White had another vision saying that she needed to write down these messages that she'd been given, not simply travel around. And remember that when she was nine years old, she got hit by a rock, another child, and knocked her unconscious, and she was in very poor health after that, and she, her hands trembled and she couldn't write. She only had, about a fourth grade education. So she said, but Lord, I... What, a third grade? Okay. I can't write. And the, and the Lord says, I want you to write. So she said, okay, Lord. So she sat down, picked up a pen, and her hand started moving gracefully across the paper, which she had never been able to do before. So she started writing letters to the to the Adventist pastors, to the Adventist churches. There were people writing to her asking questions and she would so she started writing like full time almost. All day long. She would be writing letters. And it got and her husband would help her to write these letters. So instead of traveling around they started having the post office do their traveling for them. But it this got to be very difficult because I don't know if you've ever tried to write all day long but your hand gets really tired and it's mentally exhausting. Um, The closest I've been to that is I did dental hygiene for a while. And you have to use an instrument that's about the size of a pen and you're, you're using it to clean the teeth and you have to watch very carefully what you're doing. And if I do that for seven hours, I am so tired that I have to go to my car, put the driver's seat down and sleep for about half an hour before I drive home because I will fall asleep at the wheel. So when you're doing, when you're using your eyes and trying to get really good hand-eye coordination, it's extremely tiring if you try to do it all all day long. That's why I never became a dental hygienist. Yeah. Well, they say the average dental hygienist retires after 12 years. They don't last very long, partly because their wrists give out Use, they get carpal tunnel syndrome, um, and there's other reasons that they retire. A lot of them end up marrying dentists who are much richer than them, and then they retire and live happily ever after. But. <laughs> so actually, dental hygiene is a very good profession to go into if you're a, a young lady. And it, actually, if you're a young man, it's good also, because a lot of the young men who go into dental hygiene go on to become dentists. Yeah, they get it. I mean, if you go to dental hygiene at Loma Linda and then you apply to dental school and they know you and they've seen how you work, you have a much better chance of getting in. And actually those students do a lot better in school because they, what's, the, what's one of the hardest things to learn when you're a doctor is working with patients. How to you know, calm them down, get them to cooperate it's It's a very, very difficult situation to do. Um, in fact, I'd like to hear some stories someday from our physicians about interesting cases they've had with patient management I, so but that's for me, one of the hardest things is patient management so if you you learn that when you get started, well anyway, so Alan White was writing, and they had a great deal of trouble because they were getting more and more letters and more and more churches they were writing and finally they decided that this wasn't working anymore Um, The the writing and it's it's let me just read you this one section in here it says the burden became almost more than mrs white and her husband could bear they prayed for some way to open by which they could reach more people in a shorter length of time without wearing themselves away. So they were praying, what can we do about this? This is taking up a lot of our time. And so they went to a meeting in Massachusetts of Adventists who were trying to figure out how could we get the message to people more quickly. And what was the message that they wanted to give? It was the Sabbath is a holy day of the Lord and they were trying to convince people of Jesus' soon coming. So that was the focus of the early church. Now, it's kind of interesting today, I think our focus has changed more than a little bit. And so I sometimes wonder if we wouldn't be better off kind of um, retrograding a little bit and concentrating on the earlier message. Anyway, while they were at this meeting, Mrs. White had another vision, and she sa- and the vision said that her husband had to start a printing, start printing the messages and get the messages to go out. Now, they went around to all the members that they knew as they traveled around and said, we want to start a printing press and publish these messages, but nobody donated any money. So James White said, well, nobody wants to donate money, so I'm gonna buy another scythe, because they'd moved and left their equipment behind. And he bought another side, or he, he was going to buy another side, and I'm going to harvest and try to make money to start publishing. So he's leaving the home, and he just took a few steps out of the house when his friends called him back and said, your wife has passed out. And so he went running back into the house, and it turns out his wife was having another vision. And when she woke up from this vision, she said, James, You are not to go into the fields to work. Your time is too important for that. We want you, the Lord wants you to publish this paper. You are to move forward in faith. So when he heard this message, he left the house again to go back into town, but not to buy a scythe, but to find a publisher. So... He goes into Middleton, Connecticut, which is the nearest town. It's eight miles away. He walks eight miles into town, and there's a printer there. And he says to the printer, I want to start publishing a little newsletter, a little newspaper that we want to send out. It's going to be uh, eight pages long, and I want 1,000 copies printed. And uh, you know, what would this cost? And the printer told him what it was cost. And James White said that would be fine. I'd like you to publish a paper for us. But I don't have the money to pay you. So, what we're going to do is I'm going to have you publish the the paper and then I'm going to send it out to everybody and we're going to ask for donations. And then when I get the money, I'll pay you. Okay? Now, can you imagine going into a business and telling them, um, I want to, or for example, you go to a a Chevy dealer and you want to buy a Chevy Malibu or whatever car you choose. Okay, I want to buy this car. I don't have a job, but if I had this car, I could get a job, and then once I get the job, then I'll pay you. Would they give you the car? No, they wouldn't. No way. <laughs> no way. Okay, so uh, the printer goes, uh, okay, I'll, I'll do that. Now, can you, can, that's a miracle. When you go into a business, and you ask for a service, and then they give it to you for free? That's a miracle from the Lord. Uh, the, the printer said he thought that it would be nice to have a religious newspaper uh, that people could read. And he trusted James White, and he said, okay, let's try this out. So they, he did it kind of on consignment, and they published the paper. And they sent the paper out, and... Actually, listen to the process that the first edition got published. He walks into town, talks to the printer. The printer says, okay. Then he walks back home, and he writes some articles. He, gives, he walks back into town. This is trip number two. Drops off the stories, and the printer sets the type up and publishes these eight pages and gives proof copies. And now he walks back into town a few days later, picks up the proofs, walks back home, this is his third trip, and then they correct the, there's usually errors when they set type, so they correct the errors. He walks back to the printer with the corrections, this is his fourth trip, and drops it off. This is 16 miles round trip. Four times. Four Four times, and then they print them, and he goes back a week later to pick them all up, another Uh, 16 miles. Then they bring them back home. This is number five trip. And they fold them and they they wrap them so they can mail them and put stamps on them. And now they walk back to town to mail them in the post office. Six trips. 16 miles each. So I figured he walked like 96 miles to do this. Now if you walk 40 miles you lose about a pound. If you walk 40 miles they say you'll lose a pound of fat. So he probably lost a couple pounds doing this. But um, so they start publishing it. They mailed it off, and people liked it. And they started reading it. Now imagine that you were living in the 1850s. And I know this is gonna be hard to believe, but they did not have cell phones back then. Uh (laughs) And uh, they didn't have cell phones. I don't know how they survived. I mean i I left my cell phone at school the other day. I came home and I got home and it was like six o'clock. Where's my cell phone? You know I felt naked, you know because I don't have my cell phone. I had to go back there, and just as I got back to the school, there was a policeman driving up to lock he has to go in and lock all the doors in the school, make sure they're all closed, and he was able to let me in and get my cell phone back so but they had. People didn't have cell phones. They didn't have radios or televisions. And the only communication that they had was really by letters. And so people used to write letters a lot. When was the last time any of you wrote a letter? Okay, I'm trying to think of when the last time I wrote a letter. I'm thinking. I'm thinking.
0: Would you, would you include a thank you card?
1: I would. I'll give you a thank you card. Well that's really, uh, really amazing. But I wrote a letter last year, actually. Um, But I think that young people write a lot less today than they did 100 years ago. But so anyway, there was no cell phone. So people, if they got a letter, it was a big deal. Or you got something mailed to you. I mean, now we get junk mail. I must have get a stack of junk mail. And and the postman handed it to me the other day. And he said, oh, junk mail thing. He goes. Don't call it junk mail. Please don't call it junk mail. It's bulk mail. bulk mail. But anyway, they didn't have that 100 years ago. And so when people got a letter or a newspaper sent to them, they would read it cover to cover. Now, I can't imagine, I mean, I work with young people, and as I'm talking to them, they're texting on their cell phone. They are They're not really connected with they're only connected by the cell phone. And I sometimes wonder if young people are paying attention because they're on their cell phones so much. Cell phones? (laughs) So anyway, it was a big deal. Now, I've actually worked in primitive cultures. I've worked in Africa or tropical islands in the Caribbean. And if there's no entertainment for them, and if a new person comes into town, everybody comes out, and they want to see who they are, and they want to talk to them, and they want to hear your story, and um, it's, it's a different culture. So these newsletters that they sent out were very important to people, and people started sending money in. And it was not a lot, but it helped cover the expenses. But James White was spending now all of his time writing, reading, praying, and he got so exhausted publishing this paper, that he went to his wife and said, I, you know, I can't do this anymore. It's wearing me out. And he actually wrote an article saying, this is the last edition of the paper. And does anybody remember the, what the name of the, of the first newspaper? What was the name? Well, the Present Truth. Present, present Truth. Present Truth. They eventually changed it to the second Advent Review and Sabbath Herald, which got changed to Review and Herald. Review and Herald. Okay. So it was Present Truth. So he wrote an article saying this is the last edition. But his wife had another dream saying you have to keep publishing this. So um, she said souls are hungry to receive this message. And I foresee that this is going to grow and that this is going to be like rays of light reaching around the world to places that our ministers cannot go. So he kept publishing. He kept trying this and. and died. Uh-huh. Very early. Well, it was so much work He again said, I can't do this. He he said, wife, it is no use to try to struggle on any longer. These things are crushing me and will soon carry me to the grave. Which was prophetic words. I cannot go on. I have written a note saying I'm not going to publish anymore. While they were bowed in prayer, Ellen White had another vision saying, I was shown that you must not give up on the paper. This is the step that the Satan is trying to get you to take. You must keep publishing. So hearing this message from the Lord, he got up and carried on and kept publishing the newspaper. Eventually it did exhaust him so much that he got very sick and discouraged. And when he got sick, I remember the story on his deathbed. He was so weak, and Ellen White said to him, you know, you need to to rally. You need to to gather your strength and get over this sickness. And he said, I am so weak that I don't have the will to live anymore. I mean, he was so burned out that he said, I don't want to live anymore. And he kind of gave up. Now, when people give up, they usually don't last very long. But this, this work was very, very hard for him. And did he live? He passed away after that? Yeah, he, he eventually passed away. 1881? Yeah, and this was, it was 30 years after the publishing. I mean, he did the publishing for 31 years before he finally passed away, but it really wore him down. And I don't know about you, but I think all of us have jobs that wear us down. I get home at the end of the day and I'm just kind of brain dead when I get home. Uh, A friend of mine is a dentist and his wife told us that she leaves him alone for about two hours when he gets home because he is non-responsive, doesn't answer questions, has this glazed look when he comes home, he's kind of in a daze. And it takes him two hours before she can ask a question or talk to him. Why is
0: everyone listening?
1: I understand. Okay. Well, I think this is probably true not only in dentistry, but it's probably true in a lot of professions that you come home and you're very, very tired. I used to, my first job out of high school. I was a ditch digger, and um, we were laying water water lines six feet down underground so they wouldn't freeze in Chicago. So we had to dig really deep holes. And I was so tired at the end of the day, I just <laughs> collapsed. I mean, it was exhausting. And I'm sure that even if you spend all day texting, as none of these young people do, that they're probably very tired at the end of the day also.
0: But dentistry, you do such a fine technical work. You're right there in the mouth, and you have to you're be right on Yeah, it is. It's For very precise.
1: Yeah, it is. It's very frustrating too because you never get the precision you want. (laughs) And and as you know already, dentists have the highest suicide rate, unfortunately.
0: Is that because of the precision? It's never like because nobody likes to go to the dentist, so they're (laughs)
1: always facing people who are either scared or yeah, the patients are afraid and upset and they're angry and they're in pain and. Um, it's a real, a real struggle to get the patients to cooperate. Did I? I, th- I always excel in helping with the uh, patients that had a lot of anxiety. So, how did you calm the patients down?
0: I try to find out what their favorite thing is in life and talk about it a little bit.
1: Okay, well that's well that's a really interesting uh, technique. Everybody develops their own technique for patient management. Um, I had a little girl that was nine years old when we were working overseas. And she laid down in the chair and she started screaming at the top of her lungs. And just as loud as she could. And you know, my front office secretary came back and said, Dr. Trot, this is a little bit too intense. And the patients out, the way? out in the lobby are hearing all this and they're wondering, What are we doing to this poor girl? I mean, I haven't even started working on her. She's screaming at the top of her lungs. So I tried working on her and she keeps screaming, but she she held still and wasn't moving and she kept her mouth open because she was screaming. So I said to her, I said, you can scream as loud as you want as long as you hold still and don't move. And she goes, okay so she screamed for about half, I don't know we worked on her for about half an hour and she screamed the whole time and my assistant and I put in ear earplugs and we worked on her and then when we were all done I said okay we're all done she goes okay and she stops screaming and she skips out of the room so you know every patient reacts differently to stress and problems but you have to kind of learn how to handle and every, and every patient is different every single one is different and you have, I mean, I've had patients where I actually get down on my knees and I, I, I'm pleading with them, begging them. And other patients, I'll tell them stories. Uh, when I do root canals, which is a long procedure, I find that I use verbal anesthesia. If I tell them a story, I say, Would you like to hear a mission story? And then I'll tell them about a mission story in Bangladesh, we're chased by thieves or whatever. The, the story is, and I'll just keep talking and talking and talking as we're working, and about 10 minutes they fall asleep. It's incredible. They fall asleep when I'm telling stories, and, and I may have mentioned this before, but I asked my wife, why do my patients fall asleep when I tell them stories? And my wife, do you know what my wife said? She goes, it's because you're so incredibly boring. <laughs> so, I thought about that for a minute. And I go, I wonder if that's, if, if that really. So that night I went home and I was having trouble s- sleeping. So I started talking to myself and I went right to sleep. <laughs> so anyway, patient management can be a real problem. It's probably because telling the story that your voice is soothing. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you have to be. See? If, the, if the patient hears that you're talking and you're talking in this real calm tone, they think everything's all right. But if you suddenly go oops oh my god you know or something like that oops. the patient gets really upset so you can't say oops You can't say oops yeah, I was actually uh, assisting a neurosurgeon with some electronic equipment while he was doing neurosurgery and I dropped my pen and there was like six nurses in there and three doctors and the anesthesiologist and attendings and one I dropped my pen I go oops and everybody freezes like this and the neurosurgeon goes, "Don't ever do that again." You know, <laughs> he got really upset with me for saying "oops." And the yeah, the patients
0: freak out.
1: Well, they're they're under general no, anesthesia. I
0: mean, if you say it in dentistry, oh, yeah. you assist. Oh, I assist dentists, and if you say "oops," the patient wonders, "Oh, what happened
1: to me?" <laughs> so, but actually, patient management is a really difficult thing, and. There was a we, we had a really rich couple come in one day, very well to do, and you know worth millions of dollars, and we diagnosed them and we presented a treatment plan, and and the gentleman who we were working on, he looked at our treatment plan, and it was for a number of thousands, many thousands of dollars, and he said no, I don't want to go ahead with this, I'll probably be dead in a year or two. It's not worth the time and effort. So the, one of the instructors came over to me and says, Dr. Trott, this patient doesn't want to go ahead with this treatment plan, but they can easily afford it and I don't know what to do for them. And I saw his, the man's wife and she was dressed in Neiman Marcus and had she had like $10,000 worth of clothes and jewelries on her you know pearl necklace and diamond earrings and very well to do and she looked like she was a model when she was young she was now in her 70s but she still looked very beautiful and so i told the this other teacher i said go talk to the wife and explain to her that because he's lost teeth his his jaw his is now closing smaller and he has all these wrinkles because his mouth is overclosing because he's lost tooth. And he's got wrinkles here and it makes him look older. And when he looks older, you look older. And people are gonna judge you by the way he, they're gonna think that you're as old. He looks like he's 85 years old now, he's not, but he looks like he's really old. And people are going to think that you're really old, too. And when, she, when this woman heard that, she got really upset. And she walks up to her husband, and she hits him and goes, You can't do this to me. How dare you? You, you make me look old. What you're, what you're really saying is that I'm not beautiful anymore. And she lights into him, and she really scolds him and, and is, is really upset with him. And finally goes, okay, okay, I'll go, I'll go ahead with the treatment plan. And so he went ahead. Um, but it's really fascinating um, how to get your patients to cooperate, or your children. I mean, you have to always find a way to kind of outsmart them. So, but anyway, one of the reasons that I, that I think there's an advantage, and I think it's time for us to close here, being a Christian is that when you have difficult situations like this, like difficult patients to work with, the Lord, I really believe the Lord can inspire, you know, just what to say to the patient to get them to to cooperate. And, and, you know, I'm, when I'm working with patients, I'm like praying without saying, Lord, I don't know what to do for this. Show me what to do. How can we help this person? And it's different. I mean, I've, my wife, she worked in our clinic, and she would have some patients, she wouldn't do any procedures on them, but she would just talk to them for, for their whole appointment and try to encourage them and calm them down, and um, it's, it's astonishing that sometimes patients just need somebody to talk to. We, we have older patients come in who are in their 70s and 80s, they live alone, There's nobody to take care of them. Their children live thousands of miles away. And they come in, and I go, why did you come in today? And they say, well, I didn't come in for anything dentally related, but there's nothing wrong, but I really like my dental student, and I just wanted somebody to talk to. So they just come in for an appointment to have somebody to talk to. Well, we'll do an exam on them or something, or maybe we'll clean their teeth, and and I mean it's very relatively inexpensive to get your teeth cleaned at the school. But we have a lot of older people come in because they're incredibly lonely. And that astonishes me. But you know, you can, you can usually figure this out and be an encouragement to them. but. I think that we all need to look at how has God led us in the past? How has God led our church? And what advantages do we have? Now, if you look at the the original work of the church, they focused a lot on the Sabbath, the soon coming of Christ, and the health message. Now, we all go through an education process, and I believe that Okay, why is why is the Sabbath important? In a nuts, in a nutshell, it's because God wants to spend time with us. He wants to communicate. It's like my wife; she says her favorite activity in the world is sitting down and talking to me. Huh? She just likes to talk to me. That's her favorite
0: thing in life. Yeah. Women love to have.
1: Boring. Huh? I'm just <laughs> Women love to have. A man. I I don't talk. I listen. Okay, my job. Is is she says talk? I have to. She talks. I listen. Okay. Is there more, dear? Is there more, honey? I know. I I know. That was mean. I'm sorry. You know, and so she's talking, and I have to. You know, it's it. All I say is, really? That really? You're kidding, or is there more? You know, you just have to keep listening and talking. And after about an hour or two of talking, she finally has it all out, and then she feels better, and she's very. But she says she loves talking to me, and you're a good listener. And I just listen and agree with everything she says. And <laughs> so, um, but the Lord wants to communicate with us now. If He communi- and He's been communicating with the Adventist Church for over 100 years, and is there something that He wants us to do? I believe there is. I think He wants us well. Go ye therefore into all the world. He talks to us on Sabbath. He communicates with us, but he wants us to go out and do something about it. Not just, I keep the Sabbath. What a good boy am I? Or a good girl am I? What is the case may be. He wants us to do things. Well, we have a lot of students from the Middle East at Loma Linda. And in fact, one of the students said half of her class is from Egypt or Syria, Iran, Iraq, Lebanon, Jordan, we have a lot of, there's one class, that's, it's like half of them are from the Middle East. And, and and they said, we want to do a mission trip to the, most of these are like Coptic Christians who had to leave because their churches were burned down, or I mean, they're, in, they're. it's dangerous in some Middle Eastern countries if you're Christian. So they say, but we want to do a mission trip. So one of them came to me yesterday, This young lady, and she said, Dr. Chow, we are going to do a mission trip to to Lebanon, and you are going to write a letter. And and I go, oh, really? And so she sits down, and she dictates this letter, and I write this letter. And so we sent it, yesterday we sent a letter to the conference president of the the Middle East and North Africa division asking if we could do a mission trip. And so I don't know if that anything will come of it, but I think the Lord wants us to not just, when we keep the Sabbath, it's so that he can communicate us and tell us what he wants to do and how he wants us to live. And we're supposed to move beyond just sleeping on Sabbath or lay activities or whatever and, and going to church, but he wants us to go out and do things. I think this is a growing church and he wants us to to go to all the world and be a blessing to people. So, are you coming with us to Lebanon? I don't know if I'll be able to. That sounds amazing. Eleven. And uh, I talked to somebody. I was in. I was asked to speak at an Amen conference two weeks ago in in Spokane, Washington. And there was a woman there that had been to Lebanon with her family. And they were working in a refugee camp. They say like a third of the population of Lebanon is refugees. And there's no doctors or nurses or anybody <laughs> to take care of them. And, and so you can go in there and you can start this little clinic and start seeing people. And they had, they hired, there were people that, in these refugee camps that speak English and Arabic. So they hired some of these. I mean, these are like eight to 18 to 25-year-olds, and they hired them, and these young people that they hired were just like glued to these Americans who went over there to as missionaries, and they like kind of fell in love with them and wanted to do everything with them. And so the people like respond, are responding to this care. So let's, actually let's have a closing prayer. And... I wonder, I'd like to pray that maybe someday we can do a mission trip to Lebanon. So let's bow our heads. And dear Father, You have spent the last 2,000 years instructing us, communicating with us by the Holy Spirit. You sent Christ to make a great sacrifice to save us from our sins. And I sincerely believe that You have a great work for us to do. There are things that you want and need us to do. And I pray that we would humble ourselves and submit to your guidance and leading. And Father, as you know, there are uh, a number of young people at Loma Linda that are from the Middle East and they would like to go back and do mission work there in Lebanon and Jordan. And we pray, if it is your will, that you would open the doors and make it possible for us to go back and be a blessing to these people for these things we pray in jesus name amen